in the darkest worlds that ever were. The only thing that brings light are stories. Those stories are kept in one place. The tiny bookcase. Welcome, Story Seekers, to another round of the Tiny Bookcase. I'm Ben. I'm Nico, and we are back. And bookier than ever. For this episode, we're joined by a writer who is incredibly prolific. He's written a whole bunch of novels, four story collections, two mini collections, and two novellas. His most recent novella, called A Different Kind of Light, explores grief, obsession, and things worse than death. We would like to welcome Simon Bestwick. Hello, Simon. Hi there. Hi, Ben. Hi, Nico. And thanks very much for having me on the show. That's quite all right, mate. Um, we've been uh, we've been eyeing you up as a guest for a while, so I'm really really glad that you accepted and have come on to tell us a story. Uh, how has it been for you in this, in this last year? It's been weird. I mean, uh, first of all, you know, the idea that you should be grateful to me. Look, I'm a writer, so I am desperately pathetically begging for somebody to please validate my existence with some attention. So if somebody comes along and says, would you please be on our podcast? Oh my God, someone's actually, someone's actually heard of me and thinks I'm worth talking to. Thank you. It has been a weird um, year or two um, with the pandemic and, and everything I've, um, Although I mean I've I, because I've I've had some 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 issues with stress and depression, uh, so I've actually I was actually signed off work for some quite long periods, including at the start of the pandemic. So the initial sort of stages of lockdown didn't come as much of a change to me because I was still basically no, yeah no. staying at home in bed and not really going out. Um, it's been at times a tough year. I've uh, been back at been back away. The last few months have been tough. My wife was diagnosed with cancer a couple of months ago. Uh, she's just come out oh, of I'm hospital. I'm very sorry to hear that. Very sorry that's, to hear that, man. Yeah, uh, they, 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 luckily they caught it in the early stages. She's just come out of hospital for an operation, and I am I am now her butler. Um, so she is oh, yeah. she's over on the sofa very patiently, allowing me to spend an evening uh, talking bollocks to you guys for a couple of hours. Uh, oh, and well, not... we, we will appreciate you talking bollocks to us and. Please make sure to thank your wife for us because uh, it is appreciated. Oh, I will, I will. The guys, um, the guys, both thank you for letting me out to play, darling. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to make a lot of cups of tea to make up for this. I'll tell you. <laughs> Definitely. Right. I feel like if we don't tell some stories, then our resident bibliomancer is going to be kicking off soon. So, Ben, your prompt today is beneath the crust. Beneath the crust. The man's voice sounds strange as the recording begins, somehow familiar yet alien, like how the memory of a person might speak. It begins. The ground out here was perhaps once fecund. Spring flowers might have burst out eagerly. The small splashes of colour could have been portents that the winter would pass. That was before we scorched the life from this place. This land, known to us as Sector 279, was a flattened ribbon of corpse land, just like every other sector along the line. Fifty clicks away from my bunker, on the other side, I thought that one of the enemy's linemen might be stood in their bunker, thinking about the daffodils and snowdrops that might once have grown in this place. 
I never spent much of my time wondering what the enemy thought early on, beyond how they might next attack or even how they might predict our assaults. Empathy is not a talent drilled into us in this war for the world. Why would we wonder about what they might say when we have no intention of ever listening to them? We are taught what we believe and how to kill them. That is everything our society needs us to be. Upon each side, the political ideals and ideological disputes that have defined humanity since its inception finally and fatally factionalised us 20 years ago. East, West, Left, Right, whatever the fuck they used to call it. It all went so far that there was no coming back. After the forced population exchanges, we glassed the ground between us. All of human history led to this line in the ground, an impossibly long swathe of no man's land which split the world and for which millions had died. Their deaths were a result of our ideologies being left to calcify into unchanging law. Those laws that govern us only leave room for righteous rhetoric in the echoing chambers of our society, where frenzied agreement is ensured by the blinkered belief that we must be right, as they are wrong. I remember I began staring out of my bunker's viewing slip more and more as the years marched past. The job of a lineman is simple but requires focus. The linemen managed sections of supposed no-man's land. Within our sectors, our side sowed seeds of mass destruction. High-yield mines were tunnelled into place, each of which were packed with sensors. This tactic, adopted by both sides, prevents sapping tunnels being dug beneath the crust of the land and ensures the failure of any overland assaults. The lineman watches and waits. Should any mines be tampered with or go offline, they must report it, and if needs be, they can manually detonate any of the thousands of buried bombs with the touch of a button. As my warning klaxon sounded earlier today, I watched through the viewing slit as the enemy's splay nukes spun up in patterns governed by advanced computer simulations, only to collide with our curtain of defensive plasma. The deadly rain of our distilled war splashed down on the already desiccated crust of ground I was stationed to manage. The thundering booms and accompanying flashes of incomprehensible explosions would have rendered me deaf and blind for the rest of my days were I not in the line bunker. As it was, the sound and light of attempted genocide did little more than rattle the ground beneath my boots. I checked my monitor quickly, dispassionately registering that every subsurface mine on our side, in my section of the line, was still active. These attempts had happened often, up and down the line, sector after sector would come under fire. In the last 20 years, the enemy have pierced through a few times, as have we. If it was anything like what happened for us, then I pity them. Splay nukes create cascading strike sites that obliterate anything within 40 clicks of the impact. That 40 click radius is the lucky part, as the destruction is immediate. The immolation and scarring of the next 200 clicks is where the real damage is done. Huge swathes of humanity were burned out of existence every time our defences failed. Whenever one gets through, the political response is always the same. Those that have become the gatekeepers of our society remind us of what we believe. They seethe with grief for the losses inflicted by the enemy and promise reprisals. The sound of the war drums shudder through our society and a fresh wave of impressionable soldiers heed the call. Back and forth, on and on, the only end in sight is mutual annihilation. The decision to do what I did crept upon me gradually. It grew from the staring at the land between us 
and the enemy for ten years. That land, though barren and filled with death, beckoned to me. I began to dream of walking to the middle of the line, and waiting patiently for the world to come to me. I would wake with a feeling of contentment and peace that I had never been given the tools to describe by my faction. After a time, the dream stopped, and instead, my waking mind began to mould that thought. Watching that final spiral of splay nukes fail today, I knew I would never forgive myself if I waited any longer. What if one got through before I could make my stand? I shook my head and reached for my controls. I activated each series of mines that lay buried and detonated them. Through my viewing slit, I watched that dead crust of land fountain up with gouts of fire and sprays of deep soil. That earth, though bleached by the war fought upon its surface, seemed to me to be more fertile for the tomorrow that I seek. My explosions left deep furrows through the line, as though some tightened farmer had pulled his plough through the place to start the land over. Once the dust had settled, I pulled on my hazard gear and exited my bunker. The communication speaker squawked with demands from HQ, but I ignored it. With me, I brought my rucksack, which contained all I would need. I left my rifle behind. I trudged through that freshly tilled earth, where my bombs had broken through that tough shell of corpse land, until I reached the point from my dreams. Then, I retrieved the flashlight from my bag and began to signal the enemy's bunker. Through semaphore, my words spoke of the need for peace, how the ground where I stood should be occupied by all, and that the lines of communication needed to be reopened if humankind is to regain its humanity. I waited so long that I thought I might have failed. I repeated my message from that midpoint on the line over and over again until the batteries failed in my light. It was then that you arrived, your vehicle carefully threading a safe path between the bombs laid upon your side. So I ask you, now that we are talking face to face, shall we listen to each other? The recording here ends abruptly. The responding soldiers report that after this testimony, the enemy was arrested for infractions upon the midground line and summarily executed by firing squad. The Department of State strongly advises that this recording be permanently redacted as the concept of a societal middle ground could prove dangerous to the status quo. That was extremely cool. That just, just made me think of every other day on social media, to be honest with you. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 that, that very, <laughs> you know, that very sort of everyone in, in, in these kind of very entrenched positions where you have a kind of, you either, you either accept every single point of, of this, of some of every single point of of this kind of like long checklist of opinions, uh, without exception, or you know you are you are one of the enemy, you're one of the bad guys, and yes. Uh, so I don't know if that was the, whatever the metaphor may have been. My only criticism really is it just seemed uh, the, the in the sort of the build up to um, you know setting the scene of where it was, it seemed a little at times on the nose, you know, kind of laying it laying it on about you know sort of. Our, our ideology is this, and our politics that, and it's like okay, we get the, we we get the idea. It's a right. it's a straightforward paradigm that we can we can click into quite easily. Um, we we so don't a, need as a, much. A little bit too much, perhaps. Yeah, the the, yeah. The, the the meat of the story is this is uh this guy's this guy's dreams, and then eventually impelling him to act and to break ranks with what everyone else mm. on his side and, and on the other side um are doing. Um, so that's so the the, the quicker. Or the more, the sooner we get to him and to that, and to what's going on with him, the better. Um, 
so yeah, I would just I can I, extend down. I, that. I, I t- yeah, I take, I take your point. I think that I think that would be I think that would be quite a good edit. Um, it obviously I think you hit it immediately with this idea of every day on social media, like uh, the the amount of uh, entrenched you know uh, points of view that are sort of blindly defended and attacked. Yeah. Um, online, uh, it it can become extremely um bad for your mental health to even touch social media. Oh god. So yeah. I feel like possibly the reason possibly the reason that this story has come out quite vitriolic and overblown and possibly a bit a bit fatty, as you say, on the you know, a bit too much on the descriptions of the ideology, too much on the nose. It's simply because it was written from a fairly angry point of view. Oh yeah, I mean I, um, I could completely I think, understand that. Yeah. <laughs> god knows it's how I feel yeah. a lot of the time when I when I look at, at social I, there's, there's a lot of times when I see what's going on and I've I hear people just spouting what are complete, you know, complete misrepresentations or distortions of what someone else has said. And, mm. you know, you want to weigh it and you think, what's the point? Because whatever you say, if you try, however, however nuanced or middle ground you try to be, your words will get twisted around to, to mean what, what somebody, what somebody else decides you really mean, you know, it's amazing how many people seem to develop psychic powers when they're on Facebook or Twitter. You know, and uh, I just going to look at your text and actually, oh no, what you really mean is you want all, you know, all all members of this particular group to be wiped out or whatever. It's like, yeah, okay, whatever, mm. whatever. <laughs> yeah, I was um, I was really put in mind of you know, in games like Bioshock, when you pick up the tape recorders and you get yes. a piece of that world's history through the recording. Mm. I got I got the sense of that at the beginning, and then I immediately thought, I want to play. A video game in this setting, and then I thought that would just be a sort of like the foot equivalent of playing a football manager game set in the Fallout universe. Yes, that <laughs> could be quite dull theoretically. <laughs> but it's, um, I think that actually really helped me with getting into the story because it put me in that that mindset of kind of the player. Like, okay, you're gonna you're gonna give me the law now, so I'm I'm ready to absorb it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, I think in order for it to be like a more exciting story, I think I think Simon's entirely right that at, at least a paragraph or two of the overblown descriptions of the entrenched ideologies can be dropped. Like I, everyone, everyone gets this, don't they? Everyone understands the, the the fundamentals that I'm talking about here. So possibly I don't need to spend words doing it, and to make it feel less like a law law drop and more like a story. As you as you said, Simon, focus on the uh, like where the actual story is, which is this this guy going out into no man's land to to find this midground. Um, yeah, what I'm saying it. is, you want this to sell, kid? You need to put in a scene where he's making love to his wife. I was missing any like overt gore, and and there were absolutely no uh, no nudity in it, which uh, was rather unfortunate. I, I take full responsibility. Sure, John <laughs> immediately stopped listening. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the only other thing I would have said is that it it's also made me think it's the kind of story that I could imagine someone writing, um, you know, sort of thirty, forty years ago, like when I was when I was a kid or mm. in my teens, in the you know the days of the Cold War. Um, because certainly there was a lot of fiction then. I think a lot of certainly a lot of the people, a lot of growing up, it certainly seemed that a lot of people seemed to more or less accepted that sooner or later the bomb was going to drop, and you know the remains of the uh, the remains of the Western and Eastern blocks would be fighting over the fighting over the ruins, kind of um, kind of thing. You know, there, mm. there, there was a lot. You, you you see a lot of fiction that was either you know, set in the aftermath of that conflict or so in the build up to that conflict, just basically the whole Cold War setup thrown into 
into a, into a kind of high gear. Yes, um, it's actually interesting that you bring that up because I I have actually been um, I've I've been rereading um, an old um, short story anthology that I have that does break it down into sort of golden era science fiction, silver era science fiction. So the bit the stories that I'm reading were from that section. So it's clearly that's I've been influenced by uh, older older styles of story. Um, yeah, no, that's yeah, that's very insightful, um, and thank you for the feedback. It's really appreciated. But we've uh, so we've had one story, but uh, I'm very excited to hear yours. If you'd uh, grace us with it, Simon. Okay. <laughs> Beneath the crust. I abandoned the car on the moors, and spent a few minutes looking down at the blackened stain where the city was. Here and there, it's still smoking. From the centre of the blackened zone. A great thick column of steam and smoke twists upwards, reaching into the sky before crumbling away into the wind. There are still checkpoints around the perimeter, but it's easy to find a weak point. It's been a month. Everyone's accepted nothing here can be alive, that their loved ones are lost and burned away. Everyone, it seems, but me. I slip through a checkpoint while a guard's looking the other way, then break into a run. The blackened zone smells of ash and tar and burning things. A prickly, sticky heat still hovers in the air. And, above all, there's the crust. The black, brittle crust that covers everything. My footsteps in it sound like teeth biting into ripe apples. I duck around the nearest corner. No one shouts. No one fires at me. I'm inside the blackened zone. I'm in the place you died. It gets easier now. A month on, they're still arguing about what happened. They call it a seismic event, as if that meant anything. In a country that hasn't seen an active volcano in 50 million years, something burst through the Earth's crust in the city centre, and nobody knows why. Broke one crust, and created another. There was something different about the tephra from this eruption. Some tarry, sticky quality about the ash that meant it adhered to any surface it touched, covered it, and hardened. The lampposts looked like columns of charcoal. The streets are narrow plains of brittle black. The cars are caked in it, the people inside them, too. I try not to look at them. But there's no avoiding the pedestrians. Some lie on the ground, but most didn't get the chance. I'm prepared for it, to an extent, having seen the footage from the news drones that flew in the blackened zone for a few minutes before seizing up and dying. I see a couple of fallen drones as I make my way down the street. They're the only things not caked in ash. Most of the dead look as though they were turned to stone, or charcoal anyway. But not at once. The carapace of ash is thick enough to hold them in their last position, but can't erase all features. Enough details visible for me to wish it wasn't. Hands clawing at the air, arched backs, ash-clogged mouths open wide in screams. Did you die like that? I want to believe you didn't suffer, but there's no reassurance here. Up ahead, the grey, twisted column still rises from the eruption site. No one's been able to get close enough to analyse it. Someone else can solve that mystery. That isn't why I'm here. I don't care why this happened only that it did. No, there are only two places I need to go, and only that many, 
because I didn't pay attention. I was out of the city. A training course in a town a hundred miles to the southwest, boring beyond words. I hadn't wanted to go, but hadn't been able to get out of it. You joked about pulling a sickie. I was tempted, but didn't. If I had, I'd be dead too. I probably will be by the end of today. It doesn't matter. We talked on my mobile, hands-free, as I drove down the motorway, trying and failing to avoid the rush-hour traffic. I was distracted, only half-listening. My last conversation with you. And I can't remember now whether you were working from home that day or going into the office, so I'll need to visit both. The office first. If you're there, I'll carry you home. And then? Doesn't matter. Nothing after that does. Chances are I haven't long anyway. Even with a scarf wrapped around my face, each breath still makes my throat and lungs burn. An encrusted corpse wedges the main door open. I mutter a thank you as I step over it. For all I know, that was you. You have to look closely to even guess the sex of the dead. But I don't think it was. Against all logic, I'm certain I'll know when I found you. For the first few days I used to dream you'd survived. But if I could win my way through the barriers, you'd be there. Scared, shaking, but alive. I know better now. The best I can hope is to die beside you, as I should have done that day. People talk about healing, closure, moving on. Good for them, if they can. I can't. You truly were my other half. What's left with you gone was never going to last long. I crunched my way through the lobby into your department. Death here was instant. The corpses are frozen in ordinary, workaday gestures, showing no sign of pain or alarm. Only those at the very back of the office are contorted as though they suffered. Your desk was at the back of the office. My eyes stream, and my breathing's ragged, and not from the smoke. I'm afraid what I'll see. But your desk's empty. There's just your keyboard and monitor, a coffee mug and a framed photograph, both fused to the desktop by a coating of black cinders. I break the crust away from the picture. The heat's faded, but I can still see us both. We were camping up on the coast. We were happy that day. You could still be here, of course. You could have got up to go to the toilet or talk to a colleague. But I don't believe you are, and that's better. It's better if you were home, our home, when you died. I put the photograph in my pocket, and I hear the cracking of ash. It gets louder. Not one sound, but several. Then a dozen. More. For a moment, I think, the whole crust of ash clinging to the ceilings and walls is about to fall on me and end things here and now. But when I turn around, I see that it's coming from the frozen shapes around me, from the joints of their limbs, their necks, as they begin to move. Encrusted heads turn towards me, limbs raised to ward off final agonies, are lowered, ready to lunge and grab. Arched spines straighten. Shards of ash fall to the floor. Their movements are slow, painful, and arthritic. But there are so many of them between me and the entrance.
The nearest one steps towards me. More of its blackened shell cracks and falls away. Something glistens underneath. What will I see when it's all gone? Are the dead rising in anger at their vast city-sized tomb being disturbed? Or are they dead at all? Is the crust, in fact, a chrysalis and something horribly different about to emerge? Then I remember there's a fire exit near your desk. I hoped you'd escape through it before... I remembered that even if you had, there'd only be more clouds of scalding dust outside. But it's just past your desk, and then a short run to my left. The nearest figure reaches for me, hand-shedding flakes of ash. It looks like a claw. I hit the fire door shoulder first, and it bursts open. I blunder through shin-deep cinders, trip and go sprawling in them. Jagged pieces prick my hands. I get up. Inside the office, they're all moving now. Slowly, stiffly, but with purpose, I run. All the dead city stirs around me, awakening to the intruder. Slow or not, they are many. I know I'll never leave the blackened zone. But I never intended to, and I only have one place left now to go. We didn't live far from your office. I'm gladder of that now that you're dead than I ever was when you were alive. A row of little terraced houses, a railway embankment at one end. At night we used to lie in bed listening to the trains rattle in the dark. Never too loud, just a gentle rumble that helped us sleep. I almost stumble past our door. The house is so caked in ash it's unrecognisable. Looking back along the street for those slow, relentless pursuers, I break chunks of ash away from the lock and fumble for my keys, praying the mechanism isn't clogged or fused but the key turns, click, and the only struggles forcing the door in, breaking the seal of ash that holds it shut. Inside it's dark, the air thick, staler, and more scorching than outside. I shut and lock the door anyway. Asphyxiation's probably the best death I could hope for, and this was always where my journey was going to end. I find you at the kitchen table, your laptop in front of you, fingers poised above the keys. The back door's open. It was a bright, hot day, and you were proud of your garden, though now it's a blackened waste. The surge of ash must have filled the house in seconds. You wouldn't have suffered. There one instant, gone the next. Or, depending what the ash did, on what you've become. Maybe not gone. At all. I kept hold of the photo of us. I put it down beside you, leaned back in my chair and closed my eyes. From across the table comes a cracking sound. I suppose it's too late to become like you, but I can always hope. I can hear you stirring, hear your blackened shell begin to fall away. Another minute, and I'll open my eyes and see for myself what's beneath the crust. Oh, bloody hell, Simon. That was great. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for the prompt. Yeah, I had fun writing that. that. Yeah, yeah, great. Like I did, the the fun you had describing Ash. Like I, I just didn't. Yeah, that it, every time it was it. It felt the whole the whole story felt so like tactile. Tactile is exactly the word I was about to use. Oh, well, yeah, this you. idea of having like carapaces of ash or a mouth choked with with ash or there was a description early on of like sticky ash that clung to everything 
Um, it was yeah, all horrible. And then at one point, um, you know, the character is worried that it might all just fall on them, like the the ash that's inside the office. So it has like just like um, uh, almost like a uh, uh, like a what would you even call it? Like a, it's like a it's like a biome of threat, isn't it? Um, Impressive quality, well, yeah. exactly. Yeah, just everywhere. Um, there was a lovely turn of phrase where you said um, it's like uh, teeth biting into ripe apples. Yes, that's a that's a fantastic line. Oh, thank you. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, th- this whole like um, Pompeian zombie possibility, you know, put like zombie-ish sort of vibe. Yeah, um, was I thought very well, very well worked. Like it felt. You know, because I, I I feel like it's almost dismissive to call it zombies because it it wasn't as you know, it wasn't necessarily a zombie story, um, but it was something new entirely. Like that. yeah, it's it put... gone. Sorry, Nico. The whole zombie thing, or let's call them the the ashed, because that sounds kind of. Oh, cool. I like that. We, we can copyright it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> then I'm I'm looking forward to the new series already. But the, I was I'd I'd so bought into this kind of melancholic story of a man just looking for his wife's body i thought oh it's just gonna be a really sad tale and he's gonna go back and die and then they started moving and i had a real sort of adverse reaction that's what you like to hear <laughs> yeah that was it. yeah I, I went through exactly the same thing because initially when i was like oh this is going to be really sad i was sort of expecting some sort of turn so i was thinking Oh no! Is it going to be even worse? And he gets he gets home and he finds that not only has he come here to die with his wife, but she was like cheating on him or something, and that's how he finds out. It's kind of like frozen um, in position, like frozen in position with the plumber. Ash frozen men. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. ash um, bukake kind of. Um, <laughs> it's like sort of like fine webs of ash spray from their from their encased cocks. Oh God! I can't believe I'm I can't believe I'm just making that up off the wrist. I mean off the cuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I went there. I went there. <laughs> I've been reading a lot of Graham Masterton lately. That's, yeah, that's my excuse. <laughs> oh no! Oh, that was, that was, oh, it's going to take me a minute to reset after that. Oh, that was hilarious, three guys. First, I first I traumatized them with the story, then I traumatized them after the, in the discussion afterwards. <laughs> I, in my head, I've just got the it lit up in neon glow. Ash Bukake. It's just oh, sounds like a wow. new show for okay. Bruce Campbell. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it was a fantastic story. Thank Simon. you. Well, well told and well, well written. Um, I thought it was really good. I totally agree with Nick. This idea of having having a main character that 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 intends to die uh, always feels really special. I think in stories, but it can be quite easily not done correctly but that felt spot on and then with the with the horror twist to it that that's stonking that is i, I th- thoroughly enjoyed it um the, initially, uh... initially i thought it was quite interesting that um we'd both sort of gone for militarized checkpoints and yeah i kind of you know, an area of... <laughs> i yeah. remember thinking when you were reading yours they were kind of like those uh they both kind of showed this devastated uh kind of yeah sort of yeah. post post-apoc landscape kind of thing. Well, that's not not, not, a, not a full-blown apocalypse in, in this one. Just just, no, just one yeah, city, was... you know. It's just a few million people. Hang on, I'm just, just deleting Ashbukake out of my story because otherwise... <laughs> 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 More tea, Vicar. 
there, <laughs> there was a moment in the story that it had so much weight for me. So where I live, we are right next to a train station and the trains go past at night and we lay in bed and we can hear, you can't quite hear them, but it's more that you can feel the rumble yeah. of them. And as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, no, now I'm personally invested. <laughs> I, feel, I feel personally right. attacked. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of that is actually sort of, when I when I lived before I, I mean I, I live on the Wirral now because I'm a girl from I I, I always like to joke that I used to, I, I, I'm from Manchester originally and then I I went to the dark side because my, my wife's from Liverpool you know and there's that whole Manx and Scousers <laughs> thing going I had to I had to in Man, if you go up in Manchester they make a lot of jokes at the expense of of Scousers in general so I very very quickly yeah. had to get out yeah. of that habit <laughs> when I actually started living in Liverpool <laughs> with my then girlfriend yes, now wife be because you know all sorts of ways to get <laughs> yeah. dismembered on the bus kind of thing um, but yeah when I lived in Manchester I lived in a place called Swinton mm. and there was a little sort of terrace street with a, a railway embankment at one end so it was just kind of like yeah I'll just you know, it's what you do as a writer is you find find stuff from your from your own experience, just nick it and stick it in there to make it uh, to make it mm. look um, to make it make it ring make it ring a bit more true, kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Just before we move on, actually, there, there, I've just thought of something else that I really enjoyed about that story. So sorry to just layer the praise on you. But I, I can live with this. There was another one. Praise Bukake now. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> no, it was it was the implication of various like domestics and and problems in their marriage that made it very real like there was a there was a bit where you're describing they're on holiday in in the photo and i think the line is we were happy that day um which obviously which for me i sort of read that as like you know their marriage wasn't perfect um and then later on you said that you were that the characters implied that um i think they said that they were they were now glad how close they lived to her office but only because she was dead Implying that it had been the source of possible <laughs> arguments inside the marriage, uh, that you know maybe she worked too much or uh, that's interesting. You know, stayed, stayed out late or something. Those were things that were actually that they were actually in my head when I put them down. But I mean, they're perfectly valid because people. I think people often bring their what their own, you know, their own experiences, their own expectations to, to these to these stories and pick mm. up enough of a resonance. So, I mean. We were happy then. It's like you know, we were happy. That, that, yeah, that was it. Was a, just a moment where we were very, very happy together. It didn't necessarily, yeah, didn't necessarily mean to imply that there were there were problems. But if it adds that extra layer of level of I, layer of kind of um, you know sort of realism to it, then it's uh, then it's it's a positively good thing if it does. Yeah, I think so. And the realism does serve you there because that you know this idea that his his marriage was was perfect and she was perfect and that's why he's going to die with her i don't feel like that's as strong as they were just people you know like people that everyone can empathize with and and see the side you know see the see the sides of them and stuff and the, yeah. there were you know possibly there were problems but but you know he did he did love her literally to death you know had marriage vows etc cetera, etc cetera. um and to, you know and and has gone into this place with you know a a covering over his face, and he knows that he's going to choke to death or uh, die in other grisly ways. But he's he's going to die with her because that's what he you know that's what he was always going to do. And living without her just doesn't work. And it's it's lovely. It's a really touching touching story. Thank you. Um, whilst also being a stonking yarn. So well played, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, so uh, it's time for Nico to uh, no, to round us right. off. <laughs> no, I don't think I will. <laughs> <laughs> 
When you're ready. Ash Bukake. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say I could see that coming, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Who am I? What's happening? <laughs> the name's Bukake. Ash right. Bukake. <laughs> Beneath the crust. Derek adjusted his regulation moustache net. The very idea of an errant bristle was enough to set his clipboard trembling, with something akin to an organisational fury. He tugged gently at the lower right corner of his name badge. It was sitting just a few degrees off level. But if we were allowing that sort of thing, then what's next? Rats holding a parade through the street? Painted women hawking their goods outside the local parish on a Sunday morning? And drug-addled youths spray-painting genitalia onto monuments of thoroughly respected historical individuals? <laughs> Not on his watch. He wouldn't have even the slightest of head tilts, as any lucky enough to witness its emerald gleam read the words, Hello, my name is Derek. Derek felt his own head tilt backwards as a sigh of deep frustration escaped his body. He'd flipped back at least a dozen pages in the factory's sign-in book, then looked again at his pocket calendar. He knew you could do that sort of thing on your phone nowadays, but people were becoming addicted to those, best to keep it all on paper so you didn't get the 5G. He looked up at the bespotted oik who was tasked with guiding him around the In God We Crust pie factory, uh, wholesome pies for goodly folk, the sign read out front. May contain donkey, the sign said on the boxes. <laughs> Though I am to understand there's one of those in the Bible, so it's probably okay. You do understand what bi-monthly means, don't you? Derek demanded. From the look of the youth, he may not have. He had the distinct look of someone who needed the knobs on the end of the levers colour-coded so he didn't accidentally make the pies lid first. <laughs> um... Every other month, the youth offered. Derek almost let loose his well-practiced nod of approval, but decided that wasn't quite enough to earn it. Instead, he settled for a look of smug derision. Precisely, young man. However, I am perusing the records contained within this document labelled sign-in book, whereupon I have discovered not one trace of any of my colleagues visiting this establishment, and I have gone back as far as six full months. The youth did not greet the statement with the abject horror that Derek was hoping for. In fact, he seemed to stare at a point roughly 15 inches behind Derek's head. He blinked at what appeared to be half speed. Oh, right. I only do Wednesdays and weekends, mate, on part-time. <laughs> the men stared at each other for a long moment. The voids between them, varying from generational to standards of hygiene, seemed to stretch beyond reckoning. Derek broke the silence first. Well, I'd say you best show me around then. I'm sure I can manage six months of inspections all in one go. He thumbed the sheet he was using to make notes about the factory. A big red X was already filling the box for the lobby area, which was caked in dust and grime. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. Follow me. Derek's senses went into true health and safety overdrive as they wended their way into the heart of the pie factory. Something here was tickling the back of his sixth sense. That little voice that would whisper to him about kosh indiscrepancies was bellowing. It just hadn't found the correct words to use yet. He breathed in deeply. 
The smell of floor cleaner greeted his nostrils. He filtered that out. They always deployed the serious chemicals when an inspector was due, and most likely not once in the interim until the next visit. Though according to their books, they hadn't had a last visit. Briefly, he felt the urge to use a computer to check the company database, to see who'd been dispatched here and failed to carry out their duty. But no, perhaps it was a clerical oversight. Maybe his colleagues had taken a bribe of some kind. It was a cutthroat world, health and hygiene. Men would take a few folded notes and no one would find out about the horse meat in the lasagna or the rust on the wheels of the pizza-based roller. Whatever had happened, he was going to get to the bottom of it. So, Sherlock-like, he allowed his mind to become clear and followed the oik through the guts of the factory. Soon, he found himself stood before a gigantic rumbling mechanism. At one end, a funnel fed mysterious paste into the machine, and at the other, a series of dishes were piled with pie bases. Each arrived with a satisfying plop, clink. The woman operating the machine seemed to be attempting to look through the floor. The glazed bovine eyes of the oppressed factory worker, watery and dull in the halogen lighting of the factory. Plop, clink. Plop, clink. Margaret, this is the health inspector. Her eyes drifted up to Derek, and to him there appeared to be nothing behind them. Her arm pumped rhythmically as she looked at him. Plop, clink. Plop, clink. Is it to do the, um... Health inspecting. She nodded. Too slowly, like it took longer than it ought to for the signals to reach her nervous system and start the next bow of the head. Oh yeah, very good that, inspecting, she said, with the wisdom and verve of an owl drowning in tar. Derek felt something tugging at him. What was it that was wrong with this picture? There was nothing off about the world-weary and downtrodden woman, those were ten a penny in most factories, but there it was. No, there it was. Her blue rinse was ensconced in a hairnet, but not a hairnet. It seemed to be several of the thin moustache nets in the distinctive green of his company's livery, all stacked together to form some greater net. Where would she have got those? He began to think, before he was whisked further in. Soon, he was stood before another contraption. A pipe labelled simply meat fed into a nozzle. Gently, Derek pressed an ear against it. He was sure he heard a meow. Uh, it normally just makes meat noises, offered his guide. Meat noises? Was cat meat? Well, technically, yes, of course it was. But not what you really wanted in a pie. Further squelching and rumbling noises emanated from the pipe. Maybe Derek had imagined it. Hastily, he scrawled some words on his clipboard. It was beginning to look like the ravings of a madman. Meow, moustache net, and concertina seemed to glow on the page between his notes about grime around the door frames and the shoddily drawn penis on the whiteboard labelled Rota. It had been wearing a cowboy hat and shouting, Hell of a ride! The penis, of course, not the whiteboard. <laughs> what sort of pies do you make here? 
Derek ventured, as they began to move on, past the enormous roaring oven mechanism. Uh, meat ones, with meat in, the guide offered in return. You can have one if you like. Derek was almost certain he didn't like, but perhaps this was the answer to the riddle forming in his head. Oh, uh, yes, I suppose so. He tried a smile on for the first time in several years. It wasn't comfortable for him or comforting for the youth, who turned left sharply, delivering Derek to the bottom of a large chute. Steaming pies were sliding down the great metal slide and dropping gently onto a belt. Scree, dunk! Scree, dunk! The young man picked up the pie by its foil casing and proffered it towards Derek. Yum, yum! Get it while it's hot! he said, mimicking the artistically rendered 50s housewife from their packaging. Derek truly didn't want to get it at all, but his gut, who frankly was the one about to suffer the most, told him he had to eat the pie. For science. For glory. For health and hygiene. Oh yes, yum yum. He stifled a cough and bit into the pie. Crunch. Something hard met his teeth. A bone, perhaps. Well, that's no good. Gingerly, he reached into his own mouth and drew forth a flat object, slathered in gravy and indented with teeth marks. Slowly, he turned it over in his hands to reveal the words, Hello, my name is Brian. There was a long moment where pieces began to slide into place. The lack of inspections, the meow, the dead eyes of the employees. He felt his gravy-laden mouth begin to form words, drawn forth from the very recesses of his health and hygiene soul. Wait a minute, you handed me this without any gloves on. This was true, and the last thought Derek had before something hard impacted the back of his head, and he began the first steps of his new life as a filling. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love that. Uh, it's really, it really funny. <laughs> I was giggling almost from the opening line. I was, I was, I was kind of holding yeah. a second thought. I shouldn't really be giggling over this. Then I heard, then I heard Ben started to crack up as well. Yeah. I was thinking, okay, okay, I can cackle away. <laughs> oh, I'm going to enjoy it. It's so good at making me laugh and, and other people laugh. It's, it's, it's wonderful. I love I, the I voices. Really that. The, the, the voices were so good in this one. Yeah, the um. Uh, the bit where he said uh, meat noises. <laughs> <laughs> I love that line about us having all the the wisdom and was it, the wisdom and verve of an owl drowning in tar. I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so many um, uh, like really organic. Like obviously, it was, there was lots of descriptions of like meat and pies and stuff, but like everything else was super organic as well. Like the way that the woman's arm like pulled the lever, this rhythmic pumping, you know. Um, all quite unsettling, you know. I found the thing that I found the most freaky, for, like for me, that really just unsettled me, was um, the way you described the other people as just being like a bit slow, like slow, as if as if they were someone had turned down the dial on their speed. Yeah. Um, and that just really set me off. Like it put me on edge that the idea of being in a situation where everyone's just not quite at the same speed as everybody else and what could that could mean? It really horrid. Yeah, it, that really. I didn't know I had that fear in me, but there you go. You found it. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I could freak you out in, in a new and exciting way. 
It's, bit, it's almost like a David Lynch feel, isn't it? Like that uh, things that aren't quite running at the same speed or pace or rhythm. Or yeah. There's something that's... That's it. Even when, even when on the surface people are just doing and saying normal things, there's something kind of off-kilter about it that suggests you're, you know, you're kind of in... You kind of crossed over into weird land at some point without realising. Yeah, that's that's spot on. That's whilst also being in this particular instance, you wrote it in a very amusing and funny way as well. It was, yeah, it, it, hard to straddle that line between creepy and funny, but you you nailed it. It's uh, it was a, a fun challenge because I've I've written. I've attempted to be funny on the podcast before. We won't say have been. Some of you out there might think I'm terribly unfunny. But um, yeah, trying to... It was almost like putting a veneer of comedy over what should be a really unsettling story. Mm. And it was fun to have have this character of Derek who thinks he's very clever, but we as the audience know that he's clearly thick. And obsessed think, with health and hygiene. <laughs> yes, so, some of the throwaway lines that you used to describe Derek in the beginning made me chuckle and cringe at the same time. So, yeah, I'm awarded that. Peter Green hawking the their wares. <laughs> exactly. Uh, people, uh, you know, youths painting genitalia on monuments. And, uh, <laughs> avoiding 5G or whatever. Yeah, say, yes, yes. I love this kind of last line. He realised that. You handed that to me without a glove. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's the big problem here, Derek. That's the big problem. Oh, Darwin yeah. Award. <laughs> I think I think my only bit of feedback would be that I think that should be the last line. Um, so yeah, it was originally. Yeah, I like the you know we were talking about earlier in in my story like some things being a little bit too on the nose. Yeah. I think this this idea of like him starting his new life as filling right at the end, like we 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 know that um, bet, much better to land on the kick of the punchline. I think um, that would be my opinion anyway. But what do you think, Simon? Yeah, I think that's. I think you possibly need to throw in this. You, you just need you just need to have some little detail in the couple of lines preceding, indicating something is about to come to clap, come down on the back of his head. Just just in case. Ah, yes. Just, just for the yeah. hard of yeah benefit of the harder thinking. Um, but I mean, yeah. Apart from that, it would be it would be a very good line to to end on, especially that idea of you know he's about to he's about to die horribly. And he's just completely oblivious to it. It's like you weren't wearing a glove. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of somewhere like ending on that would be somewhere between like um, a Pratchett and a Roald Dahl ending. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it would bring the sort um, of the the yeah, off kilterness and menace and the kind of the comedy aspects of it to a. Kind of like to a kind of like to a peak simultaneously. Yes, with, uh... especially if, as you say, if you add in a little bit of description about like maybe some clanking or something of this idea that something is coming to hit him in the back of the head and he's he's trying to put it all together, and then it and then obviously he's, he just thinks about his gloves. Yeah, um, but but a fantastic story. I wrote down halfway through. It was I think it was the first time he saw the ledger and saw that it hadn't been inspected in a while. I wrote down, because I, I take notes whilst I'm listening to stories, because I find it helps me concentrate. Um, I wrote down, Derek is definitely going in that fucking pie. <laughs> <laughs> I think talking about, I mentioned Graham oh, Masterton. There we go. I mentioned Graham Masterton before, and there was actually a, he actually wrote a story back in the 80s called Eric the Pie. I just thought, you know, Derek the Pie kind of, uh, kind of brings it to... Derek, oh, fitting. <laughs> <laughs> the zeitgeist. Yeah. It's out there now. Literally the only the only thing I thought what mind did see and it's it is literally 
a word. Um, and it was just, there was, there was like a line where uh, it was like something like, um, just like when, it, when you first meet the woman and it's you know, the, 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 the harassed factory worker and then some like gleaming in the lights of the factory. It was just the, the repetition of the word factory in the same sentence. And I just thought... Uh, yes. That's maybe the one thing that could be... I mean, as I say, when that is literally the only thing I can think of that uh, could maybe be tweaked, then, you've, you know, you've, <laughs> yes. there's, not, there's not much else... There can't be much else wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's spot on. Um, I, I think it was fascinating the way that we all uh, approached it, I think. Um, yeah, very different. Um, two, two, very, very different, yeah. Yeah. Um, the uh, yeah the the pie being the the most different I yes. would say in ter- at least in terms of the you know like this what what a crust is yeah yeah that was um, very <laughs> I, yeah and I was thinking I remember wondering what's okay what okay what what's 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 Nico going to do with crust oh okay it's pie crust I like it straight away <laughs> nice. yeah um, I'm hungry boy was that the uh, your story Simon was that the first thing that jumped into your mind or did you um, I kind of did you have did you have other ideas for the I kind of mulled it over, what and obviously when I, when I thought of crust, I initially thought, you know, the Earth's crust, um, and so my, my brain was yes. originally kind of going in the direction of, you know, like the at, at the Earth's core, but I was kind of like, how am I going to turn that into like a sweet little, you know, at most 1500 word horror story? I was thinking, you know, did they find like the, the wreck of an Edgar Allan, Edgar Rice Burroughs style, you know, tunneling machine under somebody's back garden and... Uh, you know, this, mm. it's haunted or, or whatever, and I, and, and I just started mulling, and I kind of thought of this idea of like a crust of crust of ash, um, and the the kind of yeah, I was I was just I was just uh, drifting off to sleep one night, and it kind of started taking shape. But uh, that, and obviously the realization that I had maybe three or four days to actually write the goddamn thing, and it was like, oh shit, I'd forgotten yeah, about that. Yeah. <laughs> That's always a good spur. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. I, I, I always find it interesting uh, talking to people about like how they arrived at their concept. Um, because th- I think some people walk around with the idea that stories just jump into people's heads fully formed. And that's not really... You have to play with the ideas a bit in order to get you know the beginnings of whatever you're going to write, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, so that, that certainly gels with, with my... Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it, it happens quite quickly and sometimes it can be a process that takes that takes years. And sometimes you only really sort it out by sitting down and starting to write it and find that's mm. that will actually help you find what it is you wanted to do with it but it's, it's each one's got a very different journey and gestation period amazing well spot on and um i really enjoyed i really enjoyed both of your stories so thank you very much um well, same to you enjoyed yours as well Well, very kind of you and go to bed with the fear of nuclear wastelands and ashen Zomboids and Twitter on one side and Facebook on the other side. And of course, the mo- yeah, the most frightening thing is the, the large chinned man screaming, "This is my boomstick!" As several men <laughs> ejaculate onto him. So <laughs> I guess there's that to look forward to. Well, Pleasant think, dreams, uh, guys. Yeah. Just, just, you just thought of the art for this episode, I think. <laughs> I cannot. I cannot draw Bruce Campbell covered in cut. <laughs> <laughs> Great, <come. laughs> yeah, that wasn't the kind of ash I met, but yeah, I suppose that could work. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tiny Bookcase. Remember to subscribe, otherwise you're going to miss out on the future fun. Also, tell a friend if you like this episode, link them to it. We'd be tremendously grateful. You can follow us on Twitter at Bookcase Tiny, Facebook at the Tiny Bookcase, and Instagram 
at Bookcase Tiny for updates. Speaking of supporting the podcast, well, magic can only take one so far. The Tiny Bookcase is supported by the generosity of its patrons. Those kind souls have really kept my belly full the last year. Let's cast a spell for them, shall we? For a Magnificent Beardery, let's cast the Chinicus Folliculale spell on Gary Laird. For rich ginger tones on the scalp, let us cast the Orangi Hedondo spell for Scott Byrne. And for general fabulousness, why not the Ooh-la-la Mother spell on Matthew McLaren? How do you come up with that shit, man?